Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange. Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Hello everybody, this is Terry from Texas. Episode 3, Season 3, Terry's Mysterious Moments. Glad to have you with us. want to get right into the stories. If you've been interested in the paranormal or odd things for any length of time, you probably have heard about the Dyatlov Pass incident in Russia where nine people were found dead at or near a campsite where the campsite looked destroyed. The people were dead by violence. It remains a mystery because they don't know exactly what happened. We have what is called and sometimes referred to as the American Dyatlov Pass incident. And the circumstances occurred in the late 70s, February 24, 78, in fact. Five men from Yuba City, all basketball fans, Gary Mathias, Jack Hewitt, William Sterling, Ted Weyer, and Jack Madruga left a college game in Chico, 40 miles away, in Madruga's car, a Mercury Montego. All five were to play in a league game on the 25th. They all had mental issues of varying sorts and had met at a local support group. Ted Wire's mother woke that morning to notice her son hadn't made it home. Quickly, all the families of the five established that none of them had returned home from the previous night. The police launched an investigation and although it took a few days, on February 28th they finally located the Montego. Strange thing, 
It was on an isolated mountain road 30 miles away from Chico, near the town of Palmetto. The car was stuck and had been spinning its wheels, but was fully functional and could easily have been pushed to more stable ground. It had enough gas and nothing was found in the automobile. There were no sign of any of the missing men, but it was also March in the Sierra Nevadas and nothing much could be done in the way of investigation until the thaw came. On June 4th, a group of motorcyclists discovered a body, which later proved to be that of Ted Wire, in an unheated ranger cabin a mile or so from where the car was discovered. He was shoeless, lying on a mattress with a makeshift shroud pulled over his body. Open tin cans of military sea rations littered the floor of the cabin. Some had been opened with a military issue can opener, and it was theorized that either Madruga or Matthias may have had this as both served in the army. Oddly, there was no sign that a fire had been built for warmth, although there were plenty of matches and flammable objects lying around. Later investigation proved that an exterior tank was full of propane, and had that been opened, the cabin would have been filled with heat. That's a bad way of wording that, but what they mean is that it should have been hooked to a, a stove or something in the cabin. There were other anomalies with Wire's body. He was shoeless, as noted, but otherwise he was fully clothed. A table beside the bed on which he lay held some of his personal effects, as well as a wristwatch with the crystal missing, which was confirmed to belong to none of the five. Most investigators feel this watch may have been left there by a previous tenant of the cabin and likely had no relevance. Furthermore, Wire had two to three months growth of beard on his face, had lost nearly a hundred pounds, and was badly frostbitten and had died of starvation. That's right, he had starved while a locker in the room, locked but easily forced, was stocked with enough foodstuffs to keep all five men alive for a year. Within a few weeks, the skeletal remains of Hewitt, Madruga, and Sterling were discovered in fairly close proximity to the trailer in which Wire's body lay. So what did happen to these five men? Although all were described as retarded in the original coverage of the story, and remember this is the late 70s, things weren't as sensitive as they are now, their disabilities, in at least a few instances, weren't quite that severe. Certainly both Ted Wire and Jack Hewitt seem to have been pretty severely disabled, but Jack Madruga seems to have been a bit slow but certainly not to the same extent as the other two. Gary Mathias, on the other hand, was schizophrenic rather than truly disabled. He was under a doctor's care and had taken his medication on the day of the trip to Chico. Both Madruga and Mathias, after all, had been able to serve in the military and both were licensed drivers. One oddity was noted in reference to the car itself. There were maps in the glove compartment, but all were present. This at least heavily implied that the men weren't lost, as it would certainly be expected that if they had been, the maps would be out. Also, the heavily built car had made it up the winding mountain road with no fresh dents or damage otherwise, implying a familiarity with the road, except that none of the five men were familiar with it. So was there another person in the car with them? 
This is somewhat implied by the statements of one Joseph Shones, who had driven up the same road and gotten stuck. He was digging himself out, suffering a heart attack while doing so and getting back in his vehicle, and as suspect as that sounds, it was apparently backed up by a doctor's examination later. While waiting in the car, he heard whistling noises, and looking up, saw a group of men and a woman with a baby in the light cast by another car some distance up the road, which naturally proved to be Madruga's car after further investigation. He called out for assistance, whereupon the lights shut off and the noises ceased. It was later noted that Gary Mathias had longish hair, and it was theorized that Shone's woman with the baby was none other than Mathias, possibly clutching something or hugging himself against the cold. For all that it is described by many as an American Dyatlov Pass, the case, though bizarre on the surface, is most likely a fairly mundane one. Even when medicated, individuals with mental illness can still express their disorder under conditions of stress. Some have theorized that Matthias may have suffered a stress-induced schizophrenic episode which might have caused the others to remove themselves from him out of fear. Possibly he distanced himself from them to avoid causing them harm. In any case, it is generally assumed that the other four made their way to the cabin and ate a meal there. Later, they left and met their fates in the woods nearby by whatever means. The condition of Wire's body is a bit problematic. Presumably, for some reason, he stayed behind in the cabin rather than leaving with the others. But why would he lie there slowly starving and freezing? Part of the explanation may lie in his disability. It was mentioned that he was reluctant to do anything without permission. Possibly a combination of this tendency and a lack of certain skills meant that Wire simply wouldn't have thought to look in the locker which contained additional provisions or have burnt the flammable objects around to keep himself warm. This still remains a mystery. Although the remains of the four of the five men have been recovered, Gary Mathias still remains missing. He may have come out of his hypothetical schizophrenic episode and is living somewhere under a new name. It is generally accepted and far more likely that his remains also lie somewhere in the area and are merely undiscovered. Another theory that is some sort of nefarious goings on were afoot and that the men had picked up a hitchhiker who in one way or another had commandeered the car. A more unlikely scenario but one which at least attempts to explain why they were on the lonely mountain road far from their intended destination. It was suggested by some that they merely got lost. But there is an assumption that since the car was being driven by Jack Madruga, who was discussed earlier as slow but at least had the presence of mind to serve in the army and have a driver's license, that's rather unlikely too. Notwithstanding that even if you had gotten lost, you'd certainly think once you found yourself in snowy mountains, you'd realize you took a wrong turn somewhere and backtracked. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Le Boricua. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The presence of the car in the Sierras, having meandered through mountain roads rather than take a relatively straight route on the highway, is the most mysterious thing about this case. It's one of those that seems utterly bizarre at first, and then as you look at the story, is far less mysterious than it first appeared. So how did five men get on the wrong track, go into the mountains to get lost, apparently, and then four out of the five die and five is still missing? Interesting. If you happen to be from the great state of Georgia, you may be familiar with this story. And I had heard about it a long time ago, but I wanted to touch on it again. I had not mentioned it prior in my show. I want to talk about the Georgia Guidestones. Are you familiar with the Georgia Guidestones? It's amazing to think that one of the most mysterious monuments in the United States was built in 1979. After all, people must have had time to consult the man who built the Georgia Guidestones, right? Yet somehow no one is entirely sure what exactly they mean. That's probably due in part to the fact that this monument, often referred to as America's Stonehenge, has a cryptic message engraved on it in eight different languages. The Guidestones, which are in Elbert County, feature a message containing ten guidelines, and there is an additional stone placed in the ground just a few feet away that runs down the astronomical features of the Guidestones and claims that a time capsule is buried beneath the strange monument. However, there is no indication that such a capsule is actually there or in fact has ever existed and considering the man who originally commissioned the monument referred to himself simply as Mr. Christian, there is no indication as to what prompted the building of the Guidestones or what their purpose truly is. The Georgia Guidestones are a granite monument erected in 1979 or 1980 in Elbert County, Georgia in the United States. A set of ten guidelines is inscribed on the structure in eight modern languages and a shorter message is inscribed at the top of the structure in four ancient language scripts. The monument stands at an approximate elevation of 750 feet above sea level. It's about 90 miles east of Atlanta, 45 miles from Athens, Georgia, and 9 miles north of the center of the city of Elberton. One slab stands in the center, with four arranged around it. A capstone lies on top of the five slabs, which are astronomically aligned. An additional stone tablet, which is set in the ground a short distance to the west, provides notes on the history and purpose of the guidestones. The monument is 19 feet 3 inches tall, made from six granite slabs weighing 237,746 pounds in all. The anonymity of the Guidestones authors and their apparent advocacy of population control, eugenics, and internationalism have made them a target of controversy and conspiracy theory. In June of 1979, a man using the pseudonym Robert C. Christian 
approached the Alberton Granite Finishing Company on behalf of a small group of loyal Americans and commissioned the structure. Christian explained that the stones would function as a compass, calendar, and clock, and should be capable of withstanding catastrophic events. Joe Finley of Elberton Granite assumed that Christian was a nut and attempted to discourage him by giving a quote several times higher than any project the company had taken on, and he explained that the guidestones would require additional tools and consultants. Christian accepted the quote. When arranging payment, Christian explained that he represented a group which had been planning the guidestones for 20 years and which intended to remain anonymous. Christian delivered a scale model of the guidestones and 10 pages of specifications. The five acres of land was apparently purchased by Christian on October 1, 1979 from farm owner Wayne Mullinex. Mullinex and his children were given lifetime cattle grazing rights on the guidestone site. The monument was unveiled on March 22, 1980 before an audience variously described as 100 or 400 people. Christian later transferred ownership of the land and the guidestones to Elbert County, a message consisting of a set of 10 guidelines or principles is engraved on the Georgia guidestones in eight different languages, one language on each face of the four large upright stones. Moving clockwise around the structure from due north, these languages are English, Spanish, Swahili, Hindi, Hebrew, Arabic, traditional Chinese, and Russian. Here are the guidelines. Maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Unite humanity with a living new language. Rule passion, faith, tradition in all things with tempered reason. Protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. Avoid petty laws and useless officials. Balance personal rights with social duties. Prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. Be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. A few feet to the west of the monument, an additional granite ledger has been set level with the ground. This tablet identifies the structure and the language used on it list various facts about the size, weight, and astronomical features of the stones, the date it was installed, and the sponsors of the project. It also speaks of a time capsule buried under the tablet, with spaces on the stone reserved for filling in the dates on which the capsule was buried and is to be opened have not been inscribed, so it's uncertain if the time capsule was actually put into place. The tablet is somewhat inconsistent with respect to punctuation, misspells the word pseudonym, and incorrectly uses the adjective hieroglyphic as a plural noun. At the top of the center is written, The Georgia Guidestones, Center Cluster Erected 
March 22, 1980. Immediately below this is the outline of a square, inside which is written, Let these be guidestones to an age of reason. Around the edges of the square are written translations to four ancient languages, one per edge. Starting from the top and proceeding clockwise, they are Babylonian in cuneiform script, Classical Greek, Sanskrit, and Ancient Egyptian in hieroglyphics. On the left side of the tablet is the following column of text. Astronomic features. 1. Channel through stone indicates celestial pole. 2. Horizontal slot indicates annual travel of sun. 3. Sunbeam through capstone marks noontime throughout the year. Author is R.C. Christian, a pseudonym, and like I said, that word pseudonym was misspelled. Sponsors, a small group of Americans who seek the age of reason. Time capsule, placed six feet below this spot on blank, to be opened on blank. The words appear as shown under the time capsule heading. No dates are engraved. On the right side of the tablet is the following column of text. Physical data. Overall height, 19 feet 3 inches. Total weight, 237,746 pounds. Four major stones are 16 feet 4 inches high, each weighing an average of 42,437 pounds. Center stone is 16 feet 4 inches, weighs 20,957 pounds. Capstone is 9 feet 8 inches long, 6 feet 6 inches wide, 1 foot 7 inches thick, weighs 24,832 pounds. Support stones, which are the bases, 7 feet 4 inches long, 2 feet wide, 1 foot 4 inches thick, each weighing an average of 4,875 pounds. Support stone base, 4 feet 2 and 1 half inches long, 2 feet 2 inches wide, 1 foot 7 inches thick, weighing 2,707 pounds. 951 cubic feet of granite. The granite was quarried from pyramid quarries located 3 miles west of Elberton, Georgia. At the bottom of the tablet is the following text. Additional information available at Elberton Granite Museum and Exhibit, College Avenue, Elberton, Georgia. The four outer stones are oriented to mark the limits of the 18.6 year lunar declination cycle. The center column features a hole drilled at an angle from one side to the other through which can be seen the North Star, a star whose position changes only very gradually over time. The same pillar has a slot carved through it which is aligned with the sun's solstices and equinoxes. A seven-eighth of an inch aperture in the capstone allows a ray of sun to pass through at noon each day, shining a beam on the center stone indicating the day of the year. For what it's worth, Yoko Ono praised the inscribed messages as, quote, a stirring call to rational thinking, unquote, while Wired magazine, I believe it is, stated that unspecified opponents have labeled them as 
the Ten Commandments of the Antichrist. The Guidestones have become a subject of interest for conspiracy theorists. One of them, an activist named Mark Dice, demanded that the Guidestones, quote, be smashed into a million pieces and then the rubble used for a construction project, unquote, claiming that the Guidestones are of a, quote, deep satanic origin, unquote, and that R.C. Christian belongs to a, again, quote, a Luciferian secret society, unquote related to the New World Order. At the unveiling of the monument, local minister proclaimed that he believed the monument was for sun worshipers, for cult worship, and for devil worship. Others have suggested that the stones were commissioned by the Rosicrucians, with conspiracy theorist Jay Wiedner observing that the pseudonym of the man who commissioned the stones, R.C. Christian, represents Rose Cross Christian, or Christian Rosenkreutz, the founder of the Rosicrucian Order. Alex Jones' film, Endgame, Blueprint for Global Enslavement, proposes that the Guidestones are a harbinger of self-appointed elites who intend on exterminating most of the world's population. The most widely agreed upon interpretation of the Stones is that they describe the basic concepts to rebuild a devastated civilization. Author Brad Meltzer notes that the stones were built in 1979 at the height of the Cold War and thus argues that they may have been intended as a message to the possible survivors of a nuclear World War III. The engraved suggestion to keep humanity's population below 500 million could have been made under the assumption that war had already reduced humanity below this number. The ten guidelines don't all sound bad. I mean, there's some common sense there. Treat people with respect. Base your actions on your responsibilities socially. Let nature live. Those aren't bad things. But some of the other things, just they're just weird. Uh, people describe R.C. Christian as being an oddball, a nut. Maybe he was. Maybe this was just a group of men that thought they knew better than everybody else. I don't know what to tell you about the Georgia Guidestones. They've been defaced several times by people spray-painting them with different things. Uh, not necessarily vulgar things, just very strange things. I just want to end with this little upbeat story. It's called The Amazing Resurrection of Old Rip. By the turn of the 20th century, Eastland County, Texas, had become a bustling, thriving community after the Texas and Pacific and the Texas Central Railroads reached the county in 1881. The population had increased from 549 people to 2,510. A number of new towns were established, including Ranger, Delmar, Okra, Rising Star, Minrod, and Romney. Between 1880 and 1890, cotton was responsible for much of the growth, and ironically, Eastland County's most famous resident at this time was not even human. In 1897, the Dallas Morning News ran a story based on a Native American belief that horned toads could live a very long time without food, water, or air, 
by going into a suspended state of animation. On July 29th, just a few weeks after this story was published, the citizens of Eastland County gathered at the county seat to observe the laying of the cornerstone of the new brick courthouse. Among the people who stood around waiting to place a special object inside the cornerstone was a local electrician named E.E. E. Wood. In his pocket was a horn toad. On his way to the courthouse, he had observed his son playing with the creature in the yard, and on a whim, Wood decided to test the validity of the claims made in the newspaper article. After watching people place a Bible, a newspaper, and a bottle of whiskey inside the cornerstone, Wood stepped forward and gently placed his son's little pet lizard inside on top of the other objects, and soon thereafter a sheet of galvanized iron was placed over the cornerstone and mortared in place. By 1928, Eastland County had outgrown the old courthouse. The building was in a sad state of repair and it was torn down. Only the eight-foot section of wall containing the cornerstone was left standing. On opening day, more than 3,000 people watched as a tractor pulled down the wall. They'd been drawn to the county seat by a series of articles written by a local newspaper man named Boyce House, which speculated that Wood's horn toad was still alive. After the dust cleared, only the cornerstone remained. One of the spectators was E.E. E. Wood, who, along with his grown son, gazed intently as workmen pried off the iron lid. A minister, a Reverend Singleton, walked up to the cornerstone and peered inside. He then turned to the crowd and said the horn toad was visible. At that point, an oil man named Eugene Day stepped forward, reached inside the cornerstone, and picked up the little creature. He handed it to the county judge, who held up the lizard by one leg and displayed it to the crowd. People gasped as the animal began to twitch and inflate itself. Then the crowd erupted in cheers. The horn toad, which by this time had acquired the name Old Rip, was placed in a cigar box and taken to the local clinic. X-rays showed that with the exception of a broken leg, Old Rip was fine. The creature was then placed in a goldfish bowl and displayed in the window of a local store. Word of the miracle spread throughout Eastland County and beyond. Boyce House's story of the reptile's revival was picked up by the United Press. Newsreel companies descended on Eastland to film the little lizard, and before long the horned toad's image appeared on movie screens across the nation. A few weeks after Rip's miraculous resurrection, he went on tour. Rip made public service announcements and endorsed tennis shoes. He was also reputed to have sat on Calvin Coolidge's desk. Robert Ripley featured him in his Believe It or Not column. Eventually, old Rip returned to Eastland, where he spent his last days in a goldfish bowl in E.E. E. Wood's front window. The reptilian celebrity was spoiled by neighborhood children who fed him handfuls of red ants. The end finally came for Old Rip in January of 1929 when the temperature dropped and the little horn toad froze in the unheated front room. A taxidermist preserved Rip's body and it was placed in a special case designed by a local casket company. Old Rip can be seen today in the Eastland County Courthouse. Even in death, Old Rip is still a big draw to the sleepy little Texas town. That's going to be the show for this week. 
I want to thank you for being here with me. Thank you for listening. And I hope you have a great week. This is Terry from Texas. Good night.